And welcome back to the Very, Very Quite Contrary Podcast. It's Jani Organically, and I'm here with Samantha Lynn again. And just a few days ago, I announced my season. I always get season and series mixed up, but season finale of the podcast. And we're here with a bonus episode for you. So what we're going to be talking about today is our favorite topic. It's vaccines. But today we want to talk about it from a biblical perspective and this topic is a political third rail for the body of Christ. And it's causing increasing division to many, including those within the church. And we believe that people who take a, a strong stance on this topic on either side tend to be coming from a place of not with a heart of malice or deceit. And the overall goal seemed to be to correct misguided vaccine opponents and extol the virtues of vaccines and their aid in human flourishing, uh, which is good. So the pr- promoting human flourishing is virtuous and adopting a posture of sacrifice is good. But we have some concerns with some of the reasons that those conclusions are being used to promote a one-size-fits-all for a liability-free product and we want to have a conversation about it, and we'd like to invite some of the leaders uh, within the body of Christ to our Christian brothers and sisters to hear what we have to say, to think on it, to pray on it, and to make the right steps after hearing what we have to say. So, Samantha, do you want to give an intro, a a little bit more about what we're going to be talking about today? Yes. So, I'm really excited that we're talking about this in terms of a biblical perspective, because as you know, this this specific topic has made its appearance literally in every circumstance, relationship, location. And I think our followers, our audience, our community would agree that this is raising tension within families, at work, with their friends, and, and it's you can't even escape it in the church now either. But I also think that's good. It's giving us an opportunity to discuss this and what will hopefully be a civil discussion And you and I kind of talked about what we want to get across in this episode. And I just want to share the four things that we are hoping to share that will be clear by the time we go through this. So for those of you who are, you know, just getting buckled in and you have no idea what you're in for, Mm -hmm. you can kind of hear out our main points and what we hope to discuss. And then we'll get into much greater detail. So I think the first thing and the most important when I when I talk about this issue in any setting is that this issue is far from settled. The consensus in the medical community isn't unanimous. This is something that the media has tried to tell us that everybody is in agreement and that there is no more discussion to be had. And obviously I think you would agree that that's a very dangerous position to be taking when we're talking about you know, a science that is injecting foreign substances into the body. It's really dangerous to say, that's it, case closed. You know, there's no need to discuss this any further. Mm -hmm. It's really not leaving any room for us to make additional discoveries, for us to make safer vaccines. And then, of course, you know, we'll talk about also why there is no um, motivation for safer vaccines either. So number one, far from settled. Yeah. (laughs) Number two, The moral culpability for infectious disease does not rely in the hands of the non-vaccinator. The the issue of moral responsibility is so much more nuanced and complicated 
than just leaving it in the hands of one party because we all live in the society together and we can't hold this one person responsible and and we'll also go into the you know the theories of like herd immunity and the different types of immunity which will help to explain why it doesn't make sense to hold only a non-vaccinator responsible the third thing i have here is that the skepticism towards vaccine manufacturers and regulatory agencies is warranted and i think we all would love to live in a world where we can trust the experts you know i put experts in quotes we would love to live in a world like that unfortunately as we know human beings are fatally flawed we are imperfect there's always going to be sin in the world so to just blindly trust organizations and not have any sort of skepticism is again a really dangerous standpoint to take and we're going to explain why skepticism towards these agencies and towards the vaccine manufacturers is warranted. The last thing that I hope we'll get across in this episode is that, and I think you already kind of touched on this a little bit, we all want health and safety. Nobody wants things to get out of control. We all want to be healthy. We all want a safe community for ourselves, for our family, for our children, um, and for our neighbors. Because if you are a Christian, you know, we are obviously obligated to love our neighbors. And so we want that for everyone. But we have different understandings of how these goals are going to be best reached. The main thing here is we want to open this conversation, especially now that all of our religious freedoms that allow Christians to opt out of some or all vaccinations, these religious freedoms are being attacked. And, you know, even beyond that, now medical freedom in California is being attacked. So it's an issue of not just allowing people to have a different opinion, which I think is a great, you know, it's great to allow people that freedom in the church to have differences of opinion on things that are not a salvation issue. Mm -hmm. But we need people to fight for these religious freedoms in the real world that are going to allow us as believers to live in accordance with the guiding of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Yeah, absolutely. And I would just encourage the, the Christian community and in having these discussions with your leaders, or if we have some leaders listening, we do recognize that this isn't a salvational issue, like mentioned, Samantha. So I'd hate for this to be, this is not a salvational issue. It's not worth my time. I am just going to be focusing on my sermons that further the gospel. This issue is causing so much conflict and strife within your congregation. And I think that the silence of many of these churches can be taken as agreement with some other organizations that represent the body of Christ saying you must get your child vaccinated Mm -hmm. as per the CDC schedule and there is no excuse and the other church leaders staying silent on it just makes it seem like you err on the side of whatever they all say because as as Christians we don't bubble up to one Christian organization that speaks for all of us like Catholic Church would or the Mormon Church would. Uh, They've all issued statements on this and the Christian faith doesn't have one entity that speaks for it. So, which I think is is good for us. We are, are making these determinations on our own, but it does present a little, some confusion when some are silent and some are outspoken. Mm -hmm. And so. I think it's also good to bring this up in, in the context of families and and children who may be vaccine injured and they're in the church, you know, 
but I definitely think it's good that we're bringing this up to talk about it because there are families in the church who feel rejected because they've suffered through vaccine injury. And if we are really being compassionate as brothers and sisters, we'll recognize the suffering of another person, even if we don't agree with how they want to use that suffering to change the world, you know? Yeah, agreed. All right. So (laughs) I think we should talk a little bit about immunity and just vaccination in general. I think maybe this podcast episode, I hope, will draw some people who have not as much experience in researching this topic. I know you and I have probably stayed up until our eyes burn Mm -hmm. (laughs) reading about this issue. And the word immunity has come to mean something entirely different today because now that we have vaccines, it's implied that vaccination is the only way to be protected from disease. And therefore, uh, we can never speak out against vaccination. So when we say vaccination and immunization, they're not actually the same thing. So there's vaccine-induced immunity, which is what would be termed an artificial immunization. And then there's naturally acquired immunity, which only happens after encountering the disease or infection in nature. Mm -hmm. So in naturally acquired immunity, the children would contract measles. And I'll just use measles as the example because that's kind of the the talk of the town lately. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. hot button issue. So the child would contract measles when their immune system is mature and and strong. And this natural protection would provide that life, lifetime immunity and protection. And then they would pass, the mother would pass those antibodies on to their newborns. Actually, while the uh, baby is still in the womb, they're passing on those antibodies. And then when the baby is born through the breast milk. So the, in a natural, um, naturally immune population, the most vulnerable people are going to be protected. And that's that's where our heart is, right? We all want to see those who are most susceptible be the most protected. Right. The infants, because they're getting immunity from their mothers, and the adults are getting that lifelong immunity. They have their own because they have lifelong immunity. So we have broken that cycle. So I'll, I can use myself as an example. Say my, my mother's mother had measles as a child, so she would have passed on the measles antibodies to my mother but then my mother got vaccinated, and so she has no antibodies to pass on to me. Because she didn't contract so it naturally. Then that, right. So that, that chain of natural immunity is now broken. And so we're actually shifting the susceptibility onto the more vulnerable populations. Um, so in vaccine-induced immunity, we've, we've got what I would just call vaccine-induced antibody production because we are actually skipping the cell-mediated response entirely, and that that cell-mediated response occurs in natural infection. So the antibodies that you produce from vaccination, if you produce antibodies because some people are non-responders, they will wane by adulthood, and then the mother would have no immunity to pass on. So like I said, newborns and infants are left unprotected, and then the adults and the elderly are also left unprotected because their antibodies have waned by that time. And then, so I know that these these two, the vaccine-induced immunity and naturally acquired immunity, um, they seem to get bucketed into this this theory of herd immunity, which I know we'll talk about later. But we, we have evidence that herd immunity, when it was first referenced, was specifically talking about natural immunity and it has somehow shifted into the immunization side that we have to create a herd immunity with artificial immunization 
and that it's the same thing. And so we're going to explain why it's not in a, in a little bit. We sure are. <laughs> so, uh, Jenny, do you want to talk about this notion that vaccines have saved the world? Because you and I, we did an article and a podcast on this months ago, and we went into great depth on this. Well, yeah. So did vaccines save the world? I feel like anybody who talks about vaccines and has any sort of dissenting opinion about them is automatically bucketed as an anti-vaxxer. And we're, we're just not. So hopefully you've listened to thus far and you'll realize that we're not anti-vaccine. We are, we just, we want to look at the evidence and any sort of mantra that gets repeated by especially by an industry that's exempt from any sort of liability should should be questioned. And so when they say the vaccine saved the world and you go and back and look at the data and you see that the most powerful and effective methods of reducing disease are the fact that they introduced clean water and proper sanitation and address nutrition. And mm-hmm. so we have what has happened is the the um, contribution of medical measures to decrease mortality is questionable because when you look at the data, you can see that the mortality rate was falling before the vaccines were introduced because we had those other measures in place. And I think it's important to note too, that we're not necessarily saying that no vaccine has helped any decline in infection. Uh, Just that other things are more important. And when it comes to mortality, mortality for most diseases was in in the 90, like for measles, it was like 96% mortality rate decline before the vaccine was introduced. So while the measles vaccine may have reduced infection rates, uh, mortality was already very, very low. And we've reduced infection rates at what cost? This conversation kind of gets steered toward the issue of protecting the immunocompromised. And, you know, I just explained how we are shifting the susceptibility onto the vulnerable populations, but we're also seeing now a problem with donations for IV immunoglobulin, which if you have primary immunodeficiency, you need IVIG for antibodies against measles. Mm -hmm. And now we're seeing donors who were naturally immune, they meet FDA requirements for neutralizing antibodies against measles, but those who had the vaccine do not meet FDA requirements for these neutralizing antibodies. And so they've done studies. Go ahead. I was going to say, can you say that again for the people? In the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> those who are vaccinated don't have, don't meet FDA requirements for neutralizing antibodies against measles. And people with primary immunodeficiency need that for IVIG. They need donations. And they've done studies where they've given boosters to try to, to, try to increase the antibody titer. And it did result in doubling their titers. But it still was not enough to meet the FDA requirements. And that immunity, that, those titers that they brought up, just not even enough, those also waned within 100 days. So... I mean, if we're looking at this, I mean, these studies are kind of, it's kind of giving me a grim picture of what the future might look like when they say, oh, you need a measles shot every hundred days. Yeah, that's, and yeah, and we don't want it to get to that point where that's what they're recognizing. And they say in order for you to live in and operate and shop and go to school in this state, county, you have to get a immunization for every vaccine. 
every 100 days. That sounds crazy to those of you listening right now, but it has been in getting increasingly closer to that. And that's why I feel like we have, we've been so outspoken about it in just in terms of medical freedom and making decisions that are best for, for us with, with our doctors. And just, you mentioned titers and I just want to assume for maybe some of the audience don't know what titers are. It's, they basically identify the amount of antibodies in, in your blood. If you're able to mount a proper antibody response, if you encounter a particular disease or infection. Just because you have antibodies doesn't necessarily mean that you're immune. There have been countless case studies that demonstrate people with antibodies can still be infected and people without antibodies can still be protected. So immunity is obviously a lot more complex than just having antibodies. Yeah. So do you want to talk about the risks of vaccination and how we go about making our own risk benefit analysis with the information we have and how we go about having informed consent? Yeah. So the data is limited for for these risk benefit assessments because several reasons. But number one, the risks are underreported. So we don't quite have an accurate picture of how many vaccine adverse events are happening. There, There is a reporting system called the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. And VAERS. Yes, lovingly called VAERS. And doctors and nurses, if they witness a vaccine reaction, are actually supposed to report that. However, there was a Harvard Pilgrim-led project, and the CDC actually commissioned them to lead this project. And they were trying to, to see how accurate this VAERS reporting was, and they discovered that only an estimated 1% of reactions are being reported. This, this story makes me sad because the CDC asked Harvard to do this study. And when they came back and said, this is what we found, like they actually went and followed these people around and saw the effects to their health. And they came back and were like, this is a very passive program, the VAERS program. We recommend that we make it a more participatory like it's not it's not optional that we need to make it better program we're willing to help you do it and this is what we found and the CDC just stopped responding to them Uh and so they didn't even acknowledge that they had completed the report what they had said in the report so they were just kind of like well here's what we found we're tying it up and nobody's ever responding to us and the CDC never acknowledged that that report ever came out even though they commissioned it. Yeah, it's really disappointing. So not only do we have this underreporting of the risks or the injuries that have happened, the clinical trial data is limited and um, how do I say this? Just it's worthy of skepticism to say the least. There's a healthy user bias, first of all, in vaccine clinical trials. However, in the real world, Uh, And I've heard multiple stories about children who have been sick and they still end up vaccinated. There there seems to be no no, um, contraindication, apparently, for children who are sick being vaccinated. And yet they don't vaccinate sick children in clinical trials. So we've got the healthy user bias. They're limited in the amount of time that they're followed, too. And just for an example, Endurix, which is a hepatitis B vaccine, they did a clinical trial where they only followed the trial patients for four days after administering the vaccine. Mm -hmm. And that is just 
nowhere near enough ample time to observe any latent vaccine reactions like autoimmune conditions, which can obviously take longer than four days to develop. So it's just really scary to think that we're relying on four days of post-administration data. Yeah. And some of the studies I've looked at are like, they say the same thing. It's not just one injection. It's they say they follow them around or they watch them for four or five or maybe seven days. And I think anybody who's taken any pharmaceutical drug, maybe you had a reaction on day one, maybe you had one on day four, but how often did it happen? Like two weeks later where you started to notice, why is my hair falling out? Or why is my face breaking out? Like Mm -hmm. these are all reactions that that may not have happened within a few days and they wouldn't be included. Um, and, and you might be able to make the assessment, you know what, I think it's this drug and I'm going to stop taking it. And sure enough, your hair stops falling out, your face stops breaking out and you Mm -hmm. correlate it to that prescription or that, that pharmaceutical, you go back to your doctor and say, this one didn't work for me because of this. And they're like, all right, let's try something else. But if you go back to, um, the pediatrician and say, my child experienced this on day seven and the reaction is, no, that's that's just either normal, that's something else, it's anything but the vaccine. Like these are these are reactions that are happening and they are not acknowledged um, when they do happen in, in many pediatricians' offices because um, either A, they're so common that they just say, oh, that's normal, it doesn't matter. So these aren't being reported to the VAERS system, hence another reason why their uh, VAERS is underreported. Or they are just being ignored entirely, which I don't know which one is, is worse, whether we've normalized them or that we're ignoring them. I, uh, equally terrible. <laughs> is that an option? Yeah. yeah. C, both. The last thing that I, I like to point out just about the, the data we have as far as a risk-benefit analysis is that the clinical trials, not only are they not following these patients long enough, but they're not basing trial on inert placebos. So they're not using that's like the gold standard in, in scientific research. Yeah. Yeah. As defined by the CDC themselves, the CDC says that a placebo is a substance or treatment that has no effect on human beings. And the HHS confirms that the gold standard for testing interventions in people is the randomized placebo controlled clinical trial. And then HHS turns around and says that using an inert saline placebo in vaccine trials would be unethical yet it's impossible to truly evaluate the risk of a procedure if you don't use an inert placebo. So we're just kind of like running in this circle. And not only that, but they seem to be more than okay using an aluminum adjuvant, so which has no beneficial effect for the human body. In fact, the opposite is true. It has a, you know, a negative effect on the human body. So they can't use a saline placebo because then the, that group wouldn't get the vaccine. That's their mm-hmm. argument. But yeah. yet they're okay with using an aluminum adjuvant. Without the antibodies. Without the antibodies. Yeah, without the, without yeah. the benefit of it. Right. So yeah, the argument doesn't really hold weight. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't contain the virus, so it wouldn't produce antibodies. It's just going to stimulate probably neurological injury, but yeah. <laughs> that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. And there have been studies um, from top experts in the field of aluminum research that have discovered high levels of aluminum in the brains of autism patients and Alzheimer's patients. So it's definitely a concern. Um, and using an aluminum adjuvant as a placebo is very dishonest. 
Yeah, and I'm hoping that people are still with us because if they're thinking that this whole thing was going to be like um, we were going to throw in a scripture every four four minutes, um, we're we're gonna we're gonna loop it all together. And but I think a lot of the stuff that we're talking about are things that are overlooked um, or misrepresented, mm-hmm. and we're trying to show that side because any wise Christian um, shouldn't be coming to any sort of conclusion without hearing all the sides. So here's some information that you haven't heard of is and hang tight. We're going to tie it to the gospel. Definitely. And I think, I think it's important to have context because that is one thing that is not being given in most mainstream media pieces that you see discussing vaccination. There's no context given. It's just vaccines are safe and effective. Well, what is safe? What is their definition of effective? You know, you know, when you look at the clinical trials and you're seeing that their their safety is based on no placebos, you you know, it should raise a little concern. Yeah, and when you reference studies to support your your argument and say that this one study came out and said this, therefore that's what I believe, but then you didn't read the thousand studies that were in there and look at who funded them and look at what truly the, the studies said and you didn't just look at the, um, the abstract. I mean, that, that to me is dishonest as well, where you're, you're laying your claim on this summary of something you didn't read. Um, because right. how would you feel if somebody did that about the Bible? If they went and looked at somebody else's interpretation and then based their scripture off of that without reading the Bible. Right. So, so. I think we've got to go back to herd immunity because we touched on that earlier just a little bit. And we talked about how it was actually based on natural immunity and it was coined in the 30s. And now it has become this mathematical theory that's actually never been tested. And this new mathematical theory says that we have to maintain a 95% herd immunity threshold in order to protect the immune compromise. And I've already talked about how this the natural immunity was actually more protective for the susceptible populations. Uh, the natural immunity is what afforded the um, IV immunoglobulin donations to people with primary immunodeficiency. Mm-hmm. And we can also see several examples of measles outbreaks that have occurred. And we're talking like over 700 cases in Quebec. Um, and they have 95, 97% vaccination rates. There's an instance from China where they had 99% vaccination rates. So they have super high vaccination rates, well over this 95% herd immunity threshold. Mm-hmm. And they're still having measles outbreaks. Hmm. Interesting. Curious. Very curious. <laughs> so there have been multiple doctors that have come out and spoken out on this topic, and we'll get to that too as far as the consensus argument goes. Uh, but just as an example, Dr. Russell Blaylock, he's a retired neurosurgeon, and he talks about how he was when he was in medical school, they were taught that all of the childhood vaccines lasted forever. They lasted mm-hmm. for life. They didn't and that, rain. Yeah, and that thinking existed for 70 years. And now, as of recently, we're discovering that a lot of these are losing their effectiveness within two to 10 years after being given. So the average adult is not caught up on their vaccines. And if you look back to the 80s and 70s and 80s before we had mass vaccination, most people did not have, I mean, no one had these vaccines that hadn't been created yet. And yet there weren't significant outbreaks of the illnesses that we're vaccinating for now. So what was keeping the disease at bay back then? 
just something to think about. Yeah. And I would like to just applaud the scientists who probably pushed through to actually make that discovery that vaccine induced immunity was waning. And so the science wasn't settled on that one. They, they figured out that they were wrong. And right. um, so let's just use that as a platform that science is consistently evolving. Right. Yes. And thank God for that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think God is the, is the author of science. I hope that most Christians would agree with that statement. I think that they, the two can coexist because God created it. So I don't want to like ever ignore science. And sometimes I feel like that is what we're doing when we're shutting this conversation down. Agreed. And with herd immunity, I know, did we talk about non-responders yet? And if we did. Yeah, uh, I, I briefly said that not everyone will produce a an antibody response. And then right. we talked about how the antibodies don't always equal immunity. So there is non-responders is an actual term. Um, I've spoken to several nurses who, you know, in the medical community, it might be the hospital, usually the hospital's requirement that you're up to date on your immunizations. And you go in, you know, you get your three rounds of whatever they require and they'll have their titers drawn and the nurses will go and check and see you've gotten all three rounds of your MMR and you have no titers. You have no antibody response. So they write them down. They're a non-responder. They're not required to get immunized anymore, but they're allowed to keep working there because they got the three rounds. So <laughs> there is a group. It's at estimated at around 10% that are non-responders, that they will produce no antibodies. So how then can we, even if you want to accept that immunization is going to produce this theoretical herd immunity, we can never get there. We can never get beyond 90% if at least 10% of us are non-responders. Right. And just something also that I wanted to throw in here, random fact, uh, you said that these nurses are allowed to continue working there even though they supposedly aren't immune because they don't build antibodies. And like I said, that doesn't necessarily mean that they they wouldn't be immune. But there's actually, you know, legislation or I guess, quote, requirements for school children that mm -hmm. say they have to have the hep B vaccine to be in school. And yet if your child has hep B, they're allowed to attend school. And right. no one knows about it for because of medical privacy, privacy. laws. Yeah. 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 But you have so, to have the hep B vaccine. Yeah. It's interesting. Very interesting. Should we talk about the elephant in the room? Oh, my goodness. Um, well, the you already dropped the A word earlier. And I was I like, yeah, you're, um, you're going there. Yeah. So the A word um, is autism. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, this is a very heated, heated topic. And I mean, I can talk about it. Do you want to talk about it? I know you talked about it on our original podcast. Sure. I mean, I can definitely give a little bit of an overview. This is not even going to scratch the surface, though. So I I do hope that at the very least, this podcast will um, just inspire people to dig a little bit deeper. And if there's something in here that sparks your interest, like, please go continue digging and, and learn more. So this is one topic that, like we've already said, it's very controversial. And so I hesitate to bring it up because I, you know, I was never exposed to anyone with autism that, like, in my personal life, you know, other than just people at, at my mom, she works as a paraprofessional. So she has a lot of children in her, in the classroom that have neurodevelopmental disabilities, autism, et cetera. 
but I had never really made any connections between vaccinations and autism because my personal like vested interest in this issue is because of my own vaccine injury. And so I had actually felt that I could make a compelling argument for, you know, vaccine choice, vaccine freedom without even touching this subject. Yeah. But as of late, there has been some really compelling information. And I think this information has been kind of breadcrumbing for a long time. But recently, Dr. Andrew Zimmerman came out with an affidavit. And Dr. Andrew Zimmerman is, well, he was the top expert defending vaccines on behalf of the U.S. government in vaccine court. Do you want to explain vaccine court real quick? I feel like we've got to to explain that. Vaccine court. How quick is quick um all right yeah so put put a pin in autism for a second and i know that we had talked about you know why we think that skepticism of the government is warranted and so yeah i would like to take a little second to explain what vaccine court is so i think we already kind of touched on the fact that we took liability away from the vaccine industry manufacturers doctors hospitals you can't sue and you can't see like any internal documents or trials because they're totally protected under this act and then what we did was we put and put the health and human services in in charge they're like the overseer for the health perspective hss in charge and then rolling up to them would be fda cdc NIH, HRSA. And so when you have a vaccine injury and you want to pursue that and the vaccine manufacturers aren't liable, you sue the government. You sue the the secretary of HHS and their lawyers are the Department of Justice. So usually the DOJ is designed to fight for consumers against industry, but here they are defending the government and they're fighting you. And so again, there's no disclosure no precedence, and you need to prove causality that with that injury. I, I put out a podcast two episodes ago. It's called Vaccine Court is Real because some people will say that it's fake. It doesn't exist. And you hear one mother's painstaking account of eight years uh, to go through vaccine court and how they kept moving the goalpost on her on the, her um, clear and cut case that took her to get settled in court. And... When you're proving causality, they look to HHS to be one of these organizations that is putting out this science. And so like, like the NIH and all that, you would, you, they roll up to HHS. So essentially, you're asking the person that you're suing to give you the evidence to prove causality in your lawsuit against them. Do you see the problem with that situation? <laughs> And so do you see how the scientists attempting to do the science will be oppressed? And let's just take it back a second because I, let's just take a little segue off of a segue here in, uh, let's see, what year was it? Is it like in the 1986? Well, no, I'm thinking about, I was going to go with the FAA. So the NTSB, so they are in charge of investigating crashes Um, So before then, it was the FAA, and at the time, I think they were called the CAA. They were investigating themselves um, whenever there was a crash. And, you know, this this authority was then transferred to the NTSB, the National, what is it, National Transportation Safety Board, I think is the, the expansion of that. 
because they recognize, hmm, I don't think that's a good idea that um, the airlines are responsible for investigating themselves and determining the outcome of those cases. So we should have an independent board responsible for that. So you can see where our concern is that there probably should be an independent um, organization paid very well and that they're the ones determining these outcomes and that there isn't some sort of incentive for them to A, not do the science or B, not award uh, an injury so that they don't have to pay for it. I should mention anytime anybody gets a vaccine, they pay, I think it's a, like a dollar twenty-five or 25 cents. I can't remember. I thought it was they, 75 cents. Something. They pay a small little amount per vaccine that goes into a bucket for vaccine injury. So again, if that's happening every time a vaccine is being administered, you have to acknowledge that there is a concern. Yeah. So the the people footing the bill for vaccine injuries are people that are getting vaccines. All right. And we haven't, we haven't touched on the 1986 act, have we? Did you want to say something about the 1986 act? Yeah. I mean, just, just a quick blurb that in 1986, there were, well, in the 80s, there were a lot of people that were suing vaccine manufacturers for vaccine injury. And they said, we are going to go bankrupt if we keep getting sued. So they petitioned the government to give them immunity for Mm -hmm. liability. So they actually are not liable for vaccine injury or death. So that is why you have to essentially sue the government. Yeah. And again, why with that little circle there of... um protection essentially that the government gets to decide what science is science and they get to decide what injuries are injury based on their science that they do the cdc also owns some patents on vaccines so they're also a a marketing arm and they have to sell their product right so let's come back to autism and i'm glad we explained all that because that really helps to put in perspective who dr andrew zimmerman is Like I said, he was the top expert defending vaccines on behalf of the U.S. government in federal vaccine court. And he's a renowned pediatric neurologist specializing in autism, and he's pro-vaccine. So he actually agrees that vaccines can and do cause autism in some children. He submitted an affidavit, and it said, quote, I explained to DOJ attorneys that I was of the opinion that there were exceptions in which vaccines can and do cause autism. I explained that in a subset of children, vaccine-induced fever and immune stimulation did cause regressive brain disease with features of autism spectrum disorder. The CDC references a 2011 IOM report as well on their page, which is their page is titled, titled Vaccines Do Not Cause Autism. But in the actual report that they link on the page, the IOM states that the evidence is inadequate to accept or reject a causal relationship between the DTP uh, containing vaccine and autism. So well, that was kind of interesting. Yeah. No it's actually, I think it's DTP and DTAP. So they did, and it should be known, like the majority of the vaccine cases that caused the 1986 act were specifically around DTP. And so they quietly replaced that with DTAP, which is, um, they took away the whole cell pertussis part and turned it into an acellular. Correct. Um, Unfortunately, vaccine. that vaccine, it doesn't work. 
the, not, the, a, it's the, a the AP, yeah, yeah. The, the, uh, it's not efficacious. So they were inducing a lot of brain injury with the DTP, but it was more effective. And now we have traded the, you know, and I, I won't get into it. DTAP is a whole other conversation. And actually CNN just reported on it. It's been reported by mainstream media that the DTAP vaccine is ineffective. Yeah, so. and I think you'll see a lot of so pertussis, um, aka whooping cough. You'll see that there are ha- there have been a lot of outbreaks in California recently. And if you if you read, it'll say um, that all of them were vaccinated. And the if you look at the pertussis uh, surveillance report on the CDC uh, shares, the the majority of pertussis cases occur in the vaccinated children the more doses you get the higher susceptibility you have and when you look at the science behind it it makes sense because it doesn't prevent you from getting pertussis and in fact you um can chill still transmit it you just don't express the symptoms so you're actually transmitting An asymptomatic it. carrier yeah. correct yeah which is scary for me because the DTAP one is the vaccine that a lot of new moms make sure that all the grandmas and grandpas go get before they bring their child over, not really fully understanding that the grandparent won't know that they're really sick when they come over if they right. do have pertussis because they, the, those symptoms have been suppressed. And just go look up the baboon study. We want to read further about that. Yeah. So I'm going to speed through info on William Thompson. Dr. William Thompson is a whistleblower. He is a senior scientist at the CDC. He's actually still employed there, I believe. And mm-hmm. he came out in 2000, or he came out um, in 2014 to admit that a 2004 study was fraudulent, and they were disguising the fact that incidence of autism was three and a half times higher in African Americans vaccinated with MMR before 36 months. So his statement said that I regret my co-authors and I omitted statistically significant information in our 2004 article published in Pediatrics. The omitted data suggested that African-American males who received the MMR vaccine before age 36 months were at increased risk for autism. Decisions were made regarding the findings of the report, and I believe the final study protocol was not followed. And he goes on to basically say that him and his co-authors, they all met at a meeting to destroy documents relating to the study. Like they literally pulled out a trash can into the middle of the room and were told to throw everything that was incriminating data basically Mm -hmm. into the trash can. And he kept copies of those documents and he is now a whistleblower and he's protected by the whistleblower protection act. So he hasn't been subpoenaed at all, which is, is another concerning thing that you would expect that these claims be followed up on. And they haven't. Yep. Okay. Nothing against Andy Wakefield, but I'm kind of tired of <laughs> kind of tired of talking about that. But I do think that the general population has a distorted view of what really happened with the Andy Wakefield study and who Andy Wakefield is. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? I could, and I was actually particularly irked about it because we were at the hearing for SP276 recently, and Senator Pan said that the measles are being caused by the Wakefield generation. And that would, like, we all, like, had this collective, like, what? This is a, that was a, that was a new phrase for me, the Wakefield generation, is that <laughs> when his paper came out in 1998, everybody freaked out and stopped vaccinating. And that's what those are coming from, is that there was a Wakefield generation of people that didn't vaccinate. Now, first of all, Andy Wakefield is not from America. It, this was a European, was a European study that um, 
was done. And um, so I don't, I don't know where he gets that information, but uh, I, I too am kind of sick of, of talking about Andy Wakefield. Uh, I do feel bad for him because most people who quote his study that he's this fraudulent man who said that MMR caused autism and he just left a trail of, of blood in, on his hands. And if you go and read the study, they said we did not prove an association between those two. Unfortunately, the GMC had convicted the two authors, which was Wakefield and John Walker Smith. So there were two people. Most people are not aware of John Walker Smith. And there, the charges were basically the same. And Dr. Walker Smith was able to get funding to appeal his conviction. And I believe Andy Wakefield started it as well. But if you don't have enough funding to proceed with it, you, you drop it and you can't pick it up and go again. And so where John Walker Smith was able to secure the funding and go through with the full appeal, the British court completely overturned the GMC's ruling and they restored everything. So it was sad that Andy Wakefield didn't get to go through that process and he can't, you know, resume it because he gets thrown under the bus a lot. Yes. He's the uh, modern day vaccine scapegoat. Yes. And there's plenty of information out there for, you know, the discerning reader if they want to find more. And I don't want to, I don't really want to beat a dead horse because I feel like we've talked about this a lot. And we actually talk about it in our article from February too. Yeah, you can listen to that podcast as well. We talk a little bit more about it. But I think from a biblical perspective, we should probably move on to the fetal um, aborted tissues. Yes, I think that's the... The first thing that people bring up if they're talking about vaccines from a biblical perspective and they're talking about how they want the right to opt out, the aborted fetal tissue is an issue, not to be rhyming, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) the aborted fetal tissue is an issue for a lot of people. And it was actually confirmed by Dr. Stanley Plotkin, who is basically the, the, the godfather of the modern vaccine program, he wrote the textbook vaccines and he was deposed in 2008. There was a... 2018. Or 2018. Yeah. Sorry. (laughs) 2018, just last year. I guess maybe I feel like it was so long ago because it was nine hours of uh, deposition. (laughs) So it was amazing to just not that it's like not that it's great news or anything but it was good to actually hear it from the horse's mouth and I highly encourage anyone who has an extra nine hours on their hands to just listen to pieces of that deposition and hear what he has to say he actually confirms that in his work related to vaccines and they used at least 76 aborted fetuses And he confirms that he was using mentally handicapped and orphan populations to study vaccines. So I just have a lot of concerns about trusting people who are so clearly ethically misguided with something as large as injecting foreign material into myself or my children. Right. And he, I know you referenced him as the godfather of vaccines, but he also sits on the board of directors of several vaccine manufacturers. And he himself, I think, was the developer of the rotavirus vaccine. Is that correct? Um, yeah, he and Offit, Paul yeah. Offit. So, and he, he gets a lot of consulting revenue from vaccine manufacturers. They hire him for consulting. So he is very entrenched in the vaccine program. Yeah, and I don't want to like gloss over the fact that he included 76 
aborted fetuses, when you watch the deposition, you can go to YouTube and for for the moment and look up the Stanley Plotkin deposition on aborted fetal tissues. And it's it's very harrowing when you listen to it because we're told over and over again that that these there's only two if you can get anybody to admit that that aborted fetal tissues were used in vaccines there were only two and they were from so long ago and he, the person interviewing him is basically able to admit i have one study in my hand that you are a part of and you guys used 76 um, aborted fetal tissues that i believe were at least three months old and he asked him how many aborted fetal tissues have you used over your tenure and he couldn't even give an estimate so these you may come to the conclusion that there aren't full cells uh full like aborted fetal tissues in your vaccines they might be some cell strains but how many aborted fetal bodies and body parts are being used to study and develop your vaccine yes because that's still happening today it wasn't like they did this they got the perfect uh fetal tissue and now they're done doing that i mean they're still doing it it is ongoing yes it's it's public knowledge that aborted fetal parts are profitable so they sell them they use them for scientific research so that's that's not a secret there was just a new cell line created in china wallbax but Mm -hmm. it's not it's not currently being used but um here in america but you know i just want to stress that it's still happening and and the issue with these cell lines is that the older they are, the more they replicate, the more oncogenic they become. So the more likely they are to cause cancer. So eventually these fetal tissue lines will have to be replaced. So it's not like this is going to last forever. This, these, these two cell lines from the 60s, they are eventually going to need to be replaced. Right. And, and Janie, you said something that I want to point out too, that they're are still DNA and proteins from the cell lines in the vaccines that are on the market. So just as an example, the Verivax uh, vaccine insert states that this product also contains residual components of MRC5 cells, including DNA and protein. Mm -hmm. And MRC5 is the male aborted fetus that is used in some of the, the live vaccines. And, you know, also just on that note, uh, we, we tell everybody to go read your vaccine inserts. And what we've seen in the past six months, the past year, certain things are being deleted from the actual inserts. So where you used to be able to see, like you referenced Wallvax, there's like MRC5, WI38. Like these are, mm-hmm. people don't know what that means. They don't know that that's aborted fetal cell lines or DNA. And, it, and prefacing it, it would say human diploid cells. And they started to remove that phrasing. Yep. And the excipient so, lists no longer list all of the human cell lines either. So there's, if you, you can literally Google CDC vaccine excipient summary, and you will get a document from cdc.gov that states all of the excipient ingredients in vaccines. And it used to list MRC5 and WI38. The WI38 is the female aborted fetus. Mm-hmm. And now... There are still some on that list, but there are some that are missing. And when I go to read the vaccine insert, the ingredient is still listed. It still says MRC5, but the excipient list doesn't include it. So it's just very So this is very, yeah, where we're getting into this world of censorship. And now they're able for some reason to delete 
ingredients from the vaccine. Um, even section 13.1, I think for the discerning reader, you guys know what that is on, on every single vaccine insert uh, has 13.1 is, is the section. And it says that vaccines have not been tested for carcinogenic, mutagenic potential, or for the impairment of fertility. And those have started to disappear as well, even though they didn't get tested for any of those things. They just are just deleting them. They just skip from um, section 12 yeah, to section to, 14. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that these are, these are things that you have to pay attention to and be wise in making these decisions. Why are we, why are we so concerned with shutting up the people that are pointing these out? And why are we okay with them deleting this stuff so that when you do go and look at your vaccine insert, now it's not full information. Right. Cause and even why, if you're okay with it being there, you still have a right to know that it's there. Right. Yeah. So the last thing I want to say about DNA before we move into sort of the the summary and talking more about how this affects Christians, uh, the FDA stated in 2005 that DNA is a biologically active molecule whose activities pose a significant risk to vaccinees and the amount of DNA needs to be limited and its activities reduced. So they actually recommend that the residual DNA in vaccines be limited to less than 10 nanograms per dose. Now, Sound Choice Pharmaceutical Institute, uh, founded by Dr. Teresa Deicher, who she actually discovered adult stem cells. So she is a renowned researcher and scientist. And she did a, they did a study. They found that the fetal DNA levels in the MMR, varicella, and hepatitis A vaccines ranged anywhere from 142 to 2,000 nanograms per dose. So that's way above that limit of 10 nanograms. Mm -hmm. And we know that damaged and healthy cells can spontaneously incorporate fetal DNA fragments into the nucleus, altering the DNA, and that's what's called insertional mutagenesis. And there are no, like the vaccine manufacturers are not studying this. They don't know the, the safety of doing this. And Dr. Deicher, in an interview, if you go to YouTube and watch on the Highwire channel, he interviews Dr. Deicher on an episode called Genetic Roulette. Roulette. And she says that she has asked other scientists in the field whether there is whether it would be safe to inject any amount of DNA fragments into a human being. And everyone she has asked has said no. And they have also said that they will not go on record saying that because yeah. the doctors who speak up, they the doctors who have any dissenting opinion. And Dr. Deicher is very pro-vaccine, by the way. She's working on another pharmaceutical product right now to help people with blood cancer. So it's not like she's anti-pharma or anti-vaccine at all, but yet her name has been um, tarnished and she's been called a quack because she, you know, has a dissenting opinion. And so all these other scientists that she is, that are, you know, her, her peers, nobody wants to come out and speak out against it because, I mean, why would you? You see what happens to those who do. Well, and from what I remember watching that interview, she said that the scientists that used the fetal cells are incentivized. So they have a patent on that. Whereas when she came and she discovered the adult stem cells, she gets like a penny um, just for like paperwork trail purposes, but she doesn't get like a bunch of money if they were to say swap out the fetal cells for the human stem cells. And that makes the scientists who are profiting off of their original patent with the fetal cells 
angry because now they lose income to swap right. them out for something that is considered safer. So again, you can start to see like, you know, it always, it, you know, usually tends to come back to money. And yeah, so it's, it's, it's very sad. Very. So let's talk about the, the skepticism, you know, is it warranted? Should, should Christians be skeptical of the vaccine industry or vaccine manufacturers and, and the NIH or CDC, these government agencies? Oh man, there's just so much. And you guys know, we've already covered so much just in this podcast episode alone. So I hope that that has already, you know, I hope your wheels are already turning a little bit in terms of sort of the, I don't know, the inconsistencies in the CDC website, you know, the whistleblowers that have come out. And we also have that, so going back to that and the National Vaccine Injury Act of 1986, which is sometimes abbreviated NVIA, uh, when it was passed, it not only afforded vaccine manufacturers immunity from liability, but it also tasked them with completing biennial vaccine safety reports. And in, I think it was like in 2016 or 2017, ICANN, which is the Informed Consent Action Network, submitted a FOIA request. They were trying to find out what safety reports had been submitted. Uh, They had trouble getting a response. They waited over a year for a response. They eventually filed a lawsuit. And then turns out uh, no safety reports have ever been done. So if we don't have, you know, they don't have liability, so they don't have any incentive to manufacture safer vaccines and they're not sending in biennial reports on vaccine safety. They're not telling us how they're trying to improve the safety. So it's just a a huge letdown. Yeah. And I think that's where we started. We, you started to hear that mantra kind of from vaccines are safe and effective. And then this lawsuit came out. Okay. Well show us the safety reports that you've filed every two years. Oh, we don't have any. And okay, so show us the um, inert placebo control groups. And oh, we don't have any. It would be um, unethical for us to do that. And we're like, well, okay, so now you've kind of shifted or added on vaccines are safe and effective, though we can't really prove it. We don't have the placebo controls, because that's unethical. So right. It's a weird little trail of events there. Yeah. And you mentioned that the CDC owns vaccine patents too. So they're not really unbiased. Um, The ACIP, the Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices, is also rife with conflicts of interest. And the major vaccine manufacturers, which are Glaxo, Merck, Pfizer, and Sanofi, have all been convicted and fined billions of dollars for fraud. Um, most recently, you guys might have seen in the news that Mer- that um, the MMR vaccine is, well, two scientists came forward saying that the mumps portion of the MMR vaccine was based on false efficacy data. Mm-hmm. They used antibodies from rabbit blood to falsify Boost data it, yeah. that would say that it was producing enough immunity. And then we had that story about the, the Navy ship where everyone on board got the mumps, even though they were vaccinated. 100%, you know, to 100%, be, in, to be yeah. in, the, um, in the Navy, you've got to get that vaccine. And they were like, weren't around anybody and the yeah. mumps came out. And yeah. it's like the ultimate herd immunity, like study. It was, it was perfect, but we're not, that's not what is the story that's being, yeah. <laughs> nobody cares. <laughs> right. So I don't know. It, it drives me a little bit crazy, but I, I think maybe just, I'm a, I'm a skeptic by nature Uh, But I think it's healthy to have a little skepticism in this 
in in this situation, especially because we are talking about handing over the most precious in our society, children, innocent children, to corporations that have proven themselves to be untrustworthy and have proven themselves to be fraudulent liars. And they're human beings, they're flawed. So, you know, we have to remember that scripture tells us that we have to be vigilant. We are to be sober-minded because our enemy prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So vigilance is key. And especially since we, have, we know that the schemes of evil are often disguised as good. No one accepts evil at face value. You know, the devil doesn't come to you with horns and a pitchfork, right? Mm-hmm. He comes as, as an, an angel, angel of light. light. So we have this, this um, program, this mass vaccination program that is disguised as something that is inherently good uh, from benevolent origins and it's going to be a success and a good thing for the health of all people. And like I said, I don't think that, you know, I'm not saying it hasn't helped decrease some infection, but we're talking about mandating a product for all children, one size fits all even though we know that no other drug or pharmaceutical can be applied to all people equally, not even dose adjusted for body weight. Mm -hmm. So with, with these 271 vaccines in the pipeline now, we have to ask ourselves, where are we going to draw the line? How many before we are going to be allowed to opt out? I don't know. That's a good question. (laughs) Yeah. With all those in the pipeline as well and no incentive to, to do better so what do you think about the common good? Because I feel like that is, it kind of has been co-opted. The herd immunity argument has been co-opted by some Christians to say that, well, we have to to look out for the common good and we have to prioritize that common good over the well-being of our, even maybe our own children. Well, yeah. So constantly hear like the greater good, right? And, you know, as Christians, we're trying to be like Christ and he gave his life and he was the ruler of all creation and he humbled himself for people that hated him and he died to save these people and I'm looking at this as he's like the ultimate person to look up to in terms of what the greater good is and yet we see the greater good being thrown in with this theory of a mathematical non-proven equation of artificial immunity equals the greater good. I also want to just point out that scripture tells us that if we don't provide for the members of our household, that we have denied the faith and are worse than an unbeliever. And yeah, so I do take that. I take that charge for, for my child. And I think all of us who are paying attention to our children, like we, we know what's best for our child. We recognize when their cry is of hunger or of pain or of tiredness or of, or of danger. And we are given minds we are given the Holy Spirit and we are given instincts and we are given the ability to make wise decisions. And so I think it's really kind of baffling to me to equate vaccines as the greater good. Therefore, all Christians must vaccinate. Hopefully we've showed by now that it's not black and white. Right. And, um, and even if we were to agree on that, um, which, you know, I obviously don't agree, but if, even if I were, we're looking at legislation now that is removing even medical exemptions. 
Yeah, it so it's good. Yeah, it's basically saying how many times, Samantha, have we been said, you know, you can't make that determination. You can't say that because you're not a doctor. Well, guess what? In California, it doesn't even matter if you're a doctor. I've made a decision with my doctor about the the vaccination status or the exemption status of a particular child, and that doesn't matter anymore. Right. We've the legislation that's written that is just about to pass is narrowing the window to severe anaphylactic reaction or a coma to one to one particular vaccine so you have to maim your child in order to be exempt to go to school for just one vaccine so if that happens to them with the tdap vaccine guess what you still got to do it for the mmr and cross your fingers i cross your fingers for what i don't know cross your fingers that they get maimed again so they can get an exemption so they don't need any boosters or cross your fingers that they don't have a reaction this is a very emotional topic and it's very real and if, if you think that the option is, we'll just homeschool and I'm not mm-hmm. going to fight it. <sighs> it's, and for, for SB 277 that came out in 2015, they guaranteed that they would preserve the doctor-patient relationship to make a decision based on whatever that doctor felt necessary. And now they are sidestepping that and saying, nope, now it has to go through the state. The doctor has to submit that and it's going to be approved or denied, again, through very narrow parameters. And then if you think that this is not going to come to homeschoolers next year, the year after that, you're being foolish if you believe that. Because who are they going to blame the outbreaks on when they're at 100% compliance for school? Right. And then new legislation is going to come out. So this is really important that if you have any sort of concern for any vaccine, whether it's the flu vaccine, HPV, which ASIP just recommended to add for nine-year-olds, you don't get to opt out unless you stand up. Right. And I think it also needs to be said that this could potentially be a slippery slope, you know, and especially as Christians, you know, we abide by the guiding of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And if there ever comes a time where they want to mandate a medical procedure you don't agree with, well, they already have precedent with vaccines. So it won't matter at that point. I mean, I don't know what the future holds. I think for those who have read the Bible and who who read Revelation, you know that things could potentially get pretty dark for us. So, um, I mean, what is next? We have a lot of talk about overpopulation. Could there be a mandate for birth control or sterilization after a certain amount of kids? We don't know. But if we allow ourselves to be bullied into medical procedures we don't want now, or at least some of us don't want, or maybe we just don't want, maybe you just don't want the flu vaccine, because eventually all of them will be mandated, including the flu vaccine, including HPV. So, you know, if we allow ourselves to be pushed into a corner and not opt out, opt out of these now, this is just going to set a precedent for potentially more government overreach. And, you know, historically, we know that that's not a good thing. So. Yeah. And with the concept of just herd immunity being an illusion of safety and that this vaccine program itself can and does put immunocompromised individuals at risk. And yeah. Anyway. Something I've been hearing a lot from people is that, well, you should be grateful because vaccines are God's gift and, and they are, you know, common grace. Um, <laughs> and like I said, I want to build bridges here. You know, this isn't a I'm I'm all right, you're all wrong kind of thing. But I think there's I know there is definitely some room for disagreement on this. I explained earlier how 
amazing natural immunity is and how it protects those who are most vulnerable. So I would argue that vaccination, the vaccine-induced immunity, is more of man's attempt at imitating God's design and God's order, which he illustrates through this natural immunity where the the most vulnerable people are going to be protected. So I don't know, that's, that's kind of my thoughts. I think that we've also sort of accepted this or society has sort of accepted this as God's gift to humankind with a very religious fervor that neglects any kind of dissenting opinions and sidesteps evidence that conflicts with their, quote, faith. And their faith is in this vaccine science. Proverbs 18, 18, 17 says that the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. And I love that verse. I think it's so perfect for this for this topic because the media and the talking heads of the vaccine program, they're the only ones that get a voice. And so they seem right because all the opposing voices are suppressed, silenced, discredited. Anyone who disagrees, even someone who's pro-vaccine and just says, oh, I have a problem with this ingredient or, oh, this might be causing this reaction. We should look into it. They are discredited as a complete quack and their name is tarnished. They're basically tarred, feathered and burned at the stake. So, yeah, the first one is going to the first one who's stating their case seems right here. But that's only because the opposing side has not really been given a voice in the mainstream. Yeah, we're looking at millions of dollars from pharmaceutical companies to the media. So of course the media is going to be very reluctant to give any sort of unbiased reporting on this issue. It's always leaning in the favor of the pharmaceutical companies that they get their ad revenue from. Yeah. So it's just, it's a huge issue of, yeah, yeah, just a lot of unethical biased behavior all around. Right. And if, if you're choosing to publicly state that parents are morally culpable for death or disease because they haven't subscribed to this mainstream propaganda idolatry of westernized man's attempt at imitating God's immune system for for the human race. It, it begs the the wisdom for me when I hear people say something like that because how are we determining moral culpability onto one particular group of people if they choose to vaccinate their child and their child sheds a live virus of a vaccine if you go and look at St. Jude's website they they share i think you know all of the vaccines that are live that they shouldn't be in contact with people who have been recently vaccinated with with those vaccines including MMR and varicella the oral polio, the nasal flu mist, because those ones shed. And so are we morally culpable at that point because we chose to vaccinate our child and they're shedding onto the immunocompromised or the elderly or the infants? Mm-hmm. Or they're, they're, they mo- are they going to be culpable if their child becomes an asymptomatic carrier, like we talked about with the pertussis vaccine. Yeah. There's a lot of instances of responsibility and it becomes really complex. I mean, what about the resp- moral responsibility of the vaccine manufacturer? Yeah. You know, if you're if it's not effective, if the vaccine's not effective and you vaccinate your child, I mean, where's the moral responsibility for the vaccine manufacturer who said this vaccine is effective and then your child gets sick anyway? Yeah. So, it's it's just really intricate and it's, I think it's disingenuous and short-sighted to 
and emotionally manipulative too to only pinpoint moral responsibility on one party when there are multiple other parties and issues at play here. Yeah. Um, and I know the argument has been made that if you, you know, well, if you agree with the medical consensus that, that vaccines are safe and effective and you follow those orders or recommendations, then you wouldn't be morally responsible. But I mean, what about what about tobacco science? There were doctors literally recommending certain brands of cigarettes to pregnant women. So science has not always been consistent with consensus. Absolutely. We have had multiple instances in our history where we're looking back now and saying, mm, yeah, that was wrong. That was a bad idea. Shouldn't have done that. Right. And um, I think as Christians that we are obligated to seek truth and not take one entity, whether it be the CDC whether it be a pharmaceutical company, whether it be your pastor, whether it be a church organization, that anything they say shouldn't be challenged just because you respect them so much or they've done enough good that warrants 100% of my acceptance of everything that they say. That, that, that's a scary place to be um, that you would accept without further investigation. I also wanted to point out, because I actually learned this a couple years ago, and it, I had it a little bit of an epiphany, but the word vaccine is derived from the word vaca, meaning cow. Okay. And if you know anything about the Bible, you know about the golden calf worship, the idol worship. And vaccines now have sort of become this sacred cow or this idol in modern medicine, which is yeah. just promoted and worshipped like we were talking about earlier as this gift from god mm -hmm. and you know like i said there's a, a religiosity that comes with that they've even got the bumper sticker slogan safe and effective safe and effective yeah. safe and effective if you chant it enough times maybe it will be true yeah. <laughs> well and cow it doesn't you know get too far into my brain before I start thinking about the smallpox vaccine and um, mm -hmm. so you guys should look that up too yeah very a lot of interesting history there's a book called dissolving illusions by dr. Suzanne Humphreys who was a nephrologist and then uh, she learned the truth about vaccines after her nephrology patients were being injured by the flu vaccine under hospital care and so she wrote this amazing book, very thorough historical perspective on the smallpox situation. And that's where the that's where the word vaccine and that's why it comes from the word cow, because smallpox was they used cow pus in smallpox. Vaccination. Oh, is that where it came from, from the smallpox one? Because that's what I was thinking was the cow. Yeah. OK, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And just I'd like to say. I mean, Samantha, I'll let you have some closing words too, but I just would appeal to Christians to have these discussions with you, with your leaders. And if there's leaders still listening to this podcast, I would just urge you to dive deep onto this topic, especially if people are asking you to, that this is not a topic that is too taboo for Christian leaders to look into. It doesn't mean you need to have a whole sermon on it. It doesn't mean you need to take a side. In fact, I think that you shouldn't take aside. You shouldn't tell people to vaccinate or to not vaccinate. But I, I would hope that we've given enough evidence to challenge the mantras, vaccines are safe and effective, and help prevent a profitable industry from making the rules that govern our country and to accept those people who have been damaged or injured. 
by vaccines that you would make them feel welcome and comforted and hear their stories. And if you decide to not pursue this further, you decide to not look at those thousand studies before you reference them, that you decide to take the propaganda mostly accepted by mainstream media side, you're going to stand before judgment. And I just encourage you (laughs) to not be in that place. Yes. That's all I have to say. I agree. (laughs) I also want to say that I, I really do believe that we are all doing our best with the data that we have. So I don't want to see either side insinuating that the other needs to be completely solely held responsible or that they're inherently evil or they don't care about children or they don't love their neighbor. These are just divisive tactics. And as we all know, we are supposed to be unified as the body of Christ. So I just want to make sure that I stress that. And then also that neither the fear of diseases nor the fear of side effects from the vaccine should be the basis of our decisions to vaccinate or not to vaccinate. Because I've heard a lot of people say, oh, well, they're just, you know, fear-mongering with the diseases. And then I hear the other side say, oh, well, you're fear-mongering with the side effects of the vaccine. Mm -hmm. And God calls us to make wise decisions. So these wise decisions should not be made based on guilt and fear. I mean, God repeatedly tells us to, to fear not to cast our anxieties on him. So instead, I would implore everyone to seek wisdom, like in Proverbs 18, 15, when it says the heart of the discerning acquires knowledge for the ears of the wise seek it out. Just evaluate all available evidence, you know, be willing to look at both sides, like we talked about earlier, how the first side seems right, and that's because the other side has been oppressed and silenced. And then to make a decision with a sound mind, as it says in 2 Timothy 1.7. So for me personally, I believe that God created my human body divinely. He breathed life into me, and I honor the sovereignty that he has over my life. So I am personally very convicted in maintaining the integrity of this body that he's provided, free from an introduction of any foreign substances into the blood and absent of the, the man-made modifications to the immune system, And my question would be, why must Christians fight to retain the integrity of the body that we have been given? Why should we have to stop someone from injecting something into us? So this, while this isn't a salvation issue, like I said, this could be a very slippery slope. So I would just implore everyone to, whether you want to vaccinate or not, stand for the freedom for us to make choices based on our religious belief and conscience, because that is how we are going to, you know, move forward in, in our lives is by the guiding of the Holy Spirit. And if we can't make those decisions according to our religious beliefs now, where, where will it end? Where's the line? Yeah. Agreed. All right. And if you made it this far, wow, thank you. <laughs> yeah. I was like, well, this is going to be easy. It's going to be, it's going to be an hour for sure. <laughs> <laughs> psych yeah (laughs) well we appreciate anyone who has taken the time to listen to this because first of all there are a lot of podcasts you could be listening to and secondly i know this this topic is so inflammatory that some people just don't even want to touch it so if you have taken the opportunity to even listen to this i just want to say thank you and we really appreciate having 
ears yeah. that are willing to hear on this especially issue. Especially when you see that it's an hour and a half. My husband sends me Joe Rogan podcasts and I'm like, I'm not listening to that. It's three hours. Like, yeah, I'm going to start it. <laughs> like, I got to watch this over the course of like the next two months. <laughs> yeah. You know what I should have said up in the beginning is that you can listen to this on like a 1.5 or two times speed, which I'm usually a 1.5 speed on my podcast. Me too. So. All right, everybody. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Chat soon. Thank you. Bye. 2022. <laughs>